Welcome to another episode of Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics into conversation. This month, we are looking at a couple of deconstructive, reconstructive, revisionist, we're not sure yet, we're going to talk about it, comic books. The first is Kurt Busick and Alex Ross's 1994 series, Marvels. And the second comic we're going to be looking at is Darwin Cook and Dave Stewart's 2004 series, DC, The New Frontier. Let's get started. As usual, I am joined by, on my left, uh, Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm an instructor at St. John's University. And on my right, Dr. Michael Hancock. I'm a postdoc at the University of Waterloo. And my name is Dr. Anna Papard. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. As usual, we will have each of our panelists introduce the text that they're going to be representing before we start our conversation, starting with Michael introducing us to Marvels. Take it away, Michael. An issue of Kurt Busick and Alex Rocks's Marvels has a page written by theorist and cartoonist Scott McCloud to the effect that when he and Busick were in high school talking about their future in comics, obligatory pause to acknowledge how wild it is that Busick and McCloud went to the same high school, were friends, and talked about one day creating comics. They had made a deal that Busick would write the popular comics and McCloud would write the award-winning ones. And with Marvels, Busick had broken the deal and done both. McCloud's tongue is firmly in cheek here, but what he's saying isn't entirely off the point in Marvel's history when Marvels was first published. In 1994, Marvel, what was popular was singularly linked to the letter X. Of the top 100 selling comics of that year, there was literally not a single Marvel title in that list that wasn't an X-Men property. Uh, the closest is Punisher Invades the Nom, uh, which was one of the top 20 selling graphic novels. If Marvel wanted what's popular, it seems like a nostalgia series focusing on its history before the X-Men reboot was doomed to fail. At the time, Busick was an established comics writer, but hadn't worked for Marvel since he had been fired from Power Man and Iron Fist a decade earlier. Alex Ross was a relatively untested artist, whose biggest work to date was a Terminator miniseries. And yet their pitch was accepted by Marvel, leading first to winning awards, with an Eisner for Best Finite Series and another for Ross's painting, and eventually to popularity as well, with the 10th anniversary edition in 2004, another edition in 2008, and just last year, the annotated version for its 25th anniversary. The comic itself follows Phil Sheldon, a freelance reporter, and through his eyes, the reader sees the early history of the Marvel Universe unfold over the course of four issues, plus a zero issue that focuses on a Frankenstein-esque retelling of the original Human Torch's origins. In issue one, the aspiring Phil breaks off his engagement in light of the appearance of the new Marvels, only to be reassured of his place in the world with the appearance of Captain America. Issue two juxtaposes the joyous occasion of the wedding of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman with the terrors of a mutant riot. Issue three sees Phil pushed to his limit between being present to witness the heroes and maintain his family as a silver surfer and Galactus descend on Earth. And in the final issue, Sheldon's attempt to restore faith in superheroes goes awry, with a very personal loss in the death of Gwen Stacy. Marvels is a fascinating comic. Ross's painting does an excellent job setting the tone he will become known for, mixing epic scale with everyday life. The fascination with superheroes from an ordinary perspective will go on to become a major focus for Busick, as he will go on particularly to investigate, and honestly investigate much better, in his Astro City series. There's also an interesting examination of what it means to be an ordinary person in a world of Marvels, to see the world from a different perspective. You can almost see the seeds of Jessica Jones in Sheldon's sometimes jaded distance. And yet I can't help but feel the story is a little off. Sheldon himself is not a particularly endearing lead. He is somehow both a blank slate as reader surrogate and also a very specific viewpoint that never quite acknowledges his subjectivity as an aging white male. And paradoxically, by putting an ordinary person in the Marvel Universe, emphasizing the history of the Marvel Universe doesn't bring me closer to the action. It feels like it pushes me away. By focusing so deeply on the hero's history, it loses touch with the 60s and 70s real-world history and social movements that shaped Marvel, that it attempted to imitate and adapt to, however imperfectly. By centering on Sheldon's point of view and reporter detachment, it also loses some of the personal human touch that marks the Marvel superhero. Marvel's is a fascinating, popular, award-winning book by two creators I greatly admire, but when I finish it, I mostly find that I'm glad I can put it down, 
walk away from Sheldon, and walk back towards the ordinary hero I feel I know. Thank you so much, Michael. And now we'll have Andrew giving us an introduction to DC's New Frontier. New Frontier is widely regarded as Darwin Cook's magnum opus, a work that had a genuine impact on the course of superhero history. One that helped steer the zeitgeist away from the grim dark world of the 1990s excess that had so clearly consumed Marvel and DC Comics ahead of New Frontier's emergence onto the scene. Published in 2004, and shortly thereafter winning approximately all of the awards, the story takes place in the 1950s and adopts a visual aesthetic to match, one which primarily reminds me specifically of the classic Max Fleischer Superman short cartoons, but with less casual racism and misogyny. Our story unfolds slowly, maybe more slowly than one would like, building characters and stakes with tension with the kind of patience that is rarely seen from the superhero genre at large, and especially rarely seen in a book featuring as many fan-favorite characters as the cast of New Frontier Assemblies. This buildup culminates in an epic hero versus alien island conflict that tests the bounds of superhero responsibility and integrity in some compelling and dynamic ways. That slow build allows for Cook's optimistic ending to feel more earned than forced, while the gravity of earlier chapters lends a certain weight and heft to a third act that borders on cliché, at least in terms of the foundational premise. Uh, Let's all come together for the greater good and beat the big bad. Cook's narrative is commonly associated with nostalgia and trades upon it quite effectively, but in contrast to this, the tone is actually more grim and gritty than it's often credited with, exploring topics such as PTSD, political image management, and cultural isolation in ways that contrast starkly with even the cover art of the book. The book is Easter eggy, which can be alienating to non-DC devotees, but also delightful to those attuned to the many details and references which call back to all manner of DC minutiae. It's also pretty clear in reading it that Cook plays favorites with Hal Jordan over some other iconic heroes. The portrayal of gender is also a bit flat when it comes to female representation. We might even say that the gender politics are as nostalgic as the art style, and that's a bit of a problem. Overall, the good exceeds the bad for me in this story, and it does a great, perhaps miraculous, job of assembling a wide swath of heroes and genres and concepts into a world that doesn't feel as though it's in competition with itself, largely as a result of the tonal consistency that Cook brings to bear in both art and story. If you're into DC Comics, you should read this book, but that point is somewhat irrelevant. If you're into DC Comics, it's a very good bet that you already have. Who are either of these comics for? What is the ideal reader for either of these comics? We talked about how like deeply intertextual both of them are. So who are they for? Well, these seem to be pretty good entry point texts. Yeah, in and a weird way. Like yeah, that. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, yeah. again, they're so referential. Yeah. They seem to be made for like the um, um the, the Comic-Con crowd, these collectors of comics mm-hmm. who are familiar with this minutia uh, and spend a lot of their time, you know, talking about it and engaging with it. Well, what I find like fascinating about Marvels in particular is that it seems like a book that happened before its audience existed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it was like the, I, I think it's the 10th anniversary edition that really got well-known once Ross yeah. was established once Busick was established yeah we once were... this like 90s Marvel wasn't just not interested I mean it did win the awards so it was like recognized as popular or as as doing something special immediately but it did not crack the bestseller list there are comics that almost serve for like they're doing cultural capital work that they are for, in, in a sense, they are for the publishers and that these are comics that legitimize comic or superhero comics. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that gets us then at, because I, I almost want to come back to this question and talk about sort of how these comics are functioning as brand work. Mm-hmm. But maybe to get at that, we have to talk about sort of what the nature of the like revisionism or deconstruction or reconstruction that's going on here. If you had to pick one of those three terms to describe, I mean, let's start with Marvels. It's the first one chronologically. If you had to pick, is it deconstructive? Is it reconstructive? Is it revisionist? How would you describe the work that this comic is doing? I'd probably go with reconstructive. Okay. In the sense that I don't think this is, or all right, the deconstructive argument would be that it is breaking down how superheroes kind of function in a Watchmen-esque sort of style. And I think if you wanted to make that case, you would focus on 
the complaint I have with it that one of the major appeals that's held up as what Marvel was doing differently is that it creates these flawed heroes, but this is almost a step in the other direction, that these heroes are almost impossibly distanced from us. Right. They're godlike. Yeah. But that is a kind of turn towards not necessarily a deconstruction as a, yeah, a reconstruction of yeah. this kind of idealized history. There was a moment in um, chapter two in Marvel's where I, I almost feel like Busick is being an apologist uh, for how much he loves Marvel Comics. You know what I mean? Like okay. he's, he's trying to treat it with a reverence that is maybe more reflective of the child's experience of Marvel than mm. the adult experience of Marvel that yeah. we're seeing play out on a literal level. Um, so I said, there's a scene where like he's trying to eliminate one of the more fundamental problems in the overarching Marvel universe, which is that everybody loves Captain America and mm-hmm. hates the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why? Because yeah. their powers come from genetic mutation as opposed to steroids. And that, that that's a huge difference. The public is super attuned to these differences yeah. and different well, types of different mutations. I think he tries to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I, I feel like he's, he's trying. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. certainly has. Um, I think it worked almost a little better than it usually does because the first issue focused so much on Phil's like emasculation. Yeah, of the existence the of emasculation. Superheroes. Well, I mean, the you know, what is a man is a big yeah. big theme of both of these texts. And every time there was a line like that, I was just a bit cringe. But it yeah. is. But like the idea that oh, these heroes exist, and now I can't be a man to my wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't understand why Namor took away and his penis. That guess, sort of seems to say more about him than his wife. But I guess that's kind of like the mutant take, in that you're taking the manhood of my species. I mean, there is something that comes up in both of these texts for me of like the things that they find negative about the superhero genre are so like male-specific. Yes. <laughs> that yeah. I'm just sort of like, as a female reader, I'm just like... I don't have that reaction to Namor. I'm like excited that there's this like sexy, powerful, weird guy going around. I'm not all like, oh, it's the end of the world. I'm like, this is the beginning of an exciting new world. I don't have that same reaction. But but what it's, it's yeah. Sue along those same lines, his portrayal of Sue Storm. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, talking about gender in both of these texts is going to be a, something I definitely want to hit on because it's not a satisfactory aspect of either text for me. I mean, what in particular about his portrayal just, of Sue? I mean, she's the, just the kind of absent. She's idealized in an entirely different way than I think the Oh, okay. Are. Yeah. She's basically Princess Di. Yeah. I mean, I just... She's not even present, though. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. it's not like... I mean, the wedding of Reed and Sue is a big, like, celebrity thing in the comic, but, like, Sue specifically, it's not like we see any women who are, like, so excited about Sue or, like, anything. Yeah, the the closest to any sort of, like, even prominent female character is that last Gwen Stacy issue, and she is literally there to die. Well, and to represent innocence. Women represent innocence a lot in both of these comics, which is one of the issues. To to represent poor Phil's loss of innocence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in, in... well, I mean, we're getting, you know, it'll get us off track, but in New Frontier, women represent the loss of innocence of like 10 different male characters because mm-hmm. it just is like one <laughs> after another with the girlfriends in New Frontier. Uh, I can't even tell them apart no, other than yeah. <laughs> Carol's a little bitchier. I, I don't know. That's the only difference. But Otherwise, they're all the, the same. The thing is, I don't think you need to tell them apart. Yeah, I know. It's they're, just the girlfriend. They're just there to be the perfect dream girls who are so proud of their men. Well, even Wonder Woman. Yeah. Uh, her, her island gets badly attacked not yeah. wiped out but brutally uh, attacked and all she can think about is warning Superman yeah I, I know <laughs> I do like her initial appearance in the series yeah. that it's all like okay. well, right? yeah. we can talk but about gender because like, we started so but also a huge white it. savior <laughs> thing yeah <Also> <laughs> Okay, well, like, let's talk about, we opened this can of worms, so let's, like, <laughs> Wonder Woman in New Frontier. It's been, her portrayal in it has been controversial among comic book fans related to one scene or moment or incident in particular. Would you like to talk to us about that, Andrew? I'm thinking of so the Vietnam episode. Yeah, it, it's really, like, I, I don't dislike it. Like, I, I think it adds an interesting element to her character. I think people defend, um, revisions to Wonder Woman's character more than they do like any superhero in some cases. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. And I, I don't know if that's a... a, a it's a because she's a female thing. superhero. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I... I mean, she's always been such a fraught character with uh-huh. like... I mean, her contradictions are so intense. So I think you have two different 
well, at least two different. There's like 200 different, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, you know, two different kind of sects of fans that are going to be warring for like what the version of her is supposed to be or like just what degree of sexuality or cheesecake she's supposed to have or like what yeah. power means for her. I mean, just that simple question of what power means <laughs> in terms of Wonder Woman is so fraught that, you know, like I've got my own opinion, but I'm not going to say it's right or wrong. I mean, the version of her in New Frontier doesn't jive with my view of her but it's a take Mm -hmm. yeah so um yeah no it it opens with like massacre she's she's killed a whole bunch of people i believe their heads are presented on um technically not her yeah so she allowed yes okay she allowed the people who had been imprisoned at the camp to kill the people the women so just to be clear so she so she is involved she and superman right are like involved in vietnam they're like government superheroes feels very naive on Superman's part, but whatever. It, it, it does, but yeah. you know. Uh, the, the opening scene presents her as um, essentially detached from that mission. She's mm-hmm. seeing it in a cynical way that Superman still isn't. There's that schism between mm-hmm. them. And then, um, I don't know, there's like next to no consequence or fallout oh, yeah. from that later on. She just No, it's just sets the contrast between them. No, well, she's not back on board. She quits being a superhero but shortly she after that. shows right back up. Yes. Well, uh, she kind of quits because, like, Nixon, who's, like, the VP yeah. at that time, kind of, like, well, makes her quit. But Yeah, and yeah. also this experience has rendered her incapable of, yeah. like, um, being kept in line. Yeah. This would be the easiest way to frame it. So I, I thought he was starting, you know, doing something, I thought, at least interesting with Wonder Woman as uh, something appearing in her business text. Then she seems to get lost in the shuffle or on, in the Hal Jordan show. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I feel like maybe he was trying to do something and we never got the payoff. That's my interpretation. It's my understanding that it's sort of controversial among fans because there's the controversial <laughs> thing of like yes. Wonder Woman's killing of Maxwell Lord, which is something that fans bring up a lot as sort of, you know, an interpretation of her character that didn't work for kind of a lot of people. And we have some something sort of similar in New Frontier in terms of her being someone that is sanctioning, you know, like killing people violence rather than redeeming people, which does really go against the original Wonder Woman characterization of her being, you know, a symbol of love. And I, I can, you can defend this reading of her as like that version of Wonder Woman that's going to redeem men through love is, you know, just isn't good enough for an era in which we understand that, you know, (laughs) I don't know. Feminism needs to be different than that. That, you know, things are bad and we need to see women sort of fighting back in a more dramatic, more brutal way. You know, like that's a fantasy that, you know, makes sense. And I mean, her actions are defensible to the extent that she empowered these women to take revenge on their captors who were doing terrible things to them. And yet it just doesn't feel like Wonder Woman to me. Yeah, we, we could argue that maybe the, the problem, and I'm, I'm told this before, maybe the problem is just the extent to which Wonder Woman is consistently interpreted as a um, mouthpiece for like feminism at large. Yeah. Uh, so the idea mm. of her moving yeah. from a you know, in, in inclusive feminist philosophy to like a, I don't know, um, paleo like uh, Amazonian feminism, which, wow, that would be really appropriate given where she's from. Um, maybe that's what kind of um, irritates people. And I, f- I feel like there is a consistent portrayal among certain writers of especially in stories where she's contrasted with other heroes to show to present her as like this and not in the main dc but elsewhere as like the belligerent one Mm -hmm. to contrast with sort of superman's approach and batman's more scheming approach yeah i mean the only thing i don't like well there's a number of things but the main thing i don't like about that version of doing wonder woman is kind of the presumption that her former way of being strong wasn't strong and that the only way a woman can be strong is by killing people and i'm like don't love that it's not eh. (laughs) i can see how you could say that's trying to be feminist but i don't not super feminist to me portrayals of superman where it's it's not necessarily that his ideology is is um contradicted so much as the idea that he's just he's had enough Mm -hmm. you know i mean there's a breaking point he can't be nice anymore. Like, mm-hmm. um, obviously, it's explored more in alternate universe stories, like um, um, the Injustice line or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I, I tended to try to read this in that light. The idea being that Wonder Woman does believe in humankind and all that kind of stuff, but there's things out there that contradict that worldview in a way that could potentially break it. That's why I thought it was interesting where it started. But as I said, I, I felt like that um, the trajectory that initial scene created was never really 
There's a presumption of naivety, though, that goes into her having that flip. Because, you know, for her to be shocked by this, I mean, she comes from, I mean, her original backstory involves war. and I don't know if they've, or at least in my reading, it wasn't something she was shocked by. It was like, no, this is what I do when I go to a war zone. You are the guy, you are the superheroes who are having, you're the one being naive here, Cal, if you go to, like, uh, you're you've been committed to fighting a war and you think you're not this isn't going to happen yeah. and superman is a tool in this book yeah right I, th- I think that's pretty clear through at least the first half i guess it's just that i would like that as a character beat if it was a more like Absolutely. established anti-hero yeah. Yeah. female character like that would totally work for me like if that was mystique that would totally work for me that's yeah. like and totally something she would virtually do. the only female hero who gets any yeah so it's time yeah here. it's just yeah. sort of like feels like it, it's it's a, I, I actually like the scene i like that story beat i like like the themes that are present there but it's just for it being wonder yeah. woman it's just argh. well i mean let's talk with both of these texts and since we're on the topic of gender you know did we notice that in terms of these being revisionist or reconstructive, you know, their choices of which characters to focus on are perhaps interesting in terms of most of those characters being male. Is that something well, that kind of struck yeah, both of I us? Yeah, I think one of, the, one of the key signifiers to me that, oh, this was in the 90s is just how, like, there is virtually no... F- like, we have a mutant riot at a time when in real history race riots were happening. Yeah, and yet there's I nothing like that, about because that appropriation is part of Marvel Comics history. Yeah, but but it, you don't it think is also like that. yeah, I don't think it's a deconstruction. I think it's like no, I, just I, him. Yeah, I, I, it's less a deconstruction and more. Oh right, uh, black people exist. Well, yeah, I mean, sticking to the, I want to talk about the race stuff too, but sticking to gender for a moment, I mean, it's interesting that like the rise of second wave feminism isn't really present in either texts as a Mm -hmm. cultural context, which is interesting given that's exactly when both of them take place. Although New Frontier does go into the race side of things. Yeah, which we will talk about, we will talk about. Yeah, if we talk about sort of the the gender arguments in existence around comics today, especially around comics Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, this idea that comics were better when they obscured women yeah you can actually have books like this solidify and validate that perspective yeah. mm-hmm. by erasing those women yeah. or, yeah. them. or maybe even in the case of wonder woman as anna's saying maybe do something wildly inconsistent with her character so you, you could see these texts as solidifying the notion that the golden age of comics was either mm-hmm. feminine absent or feminine in a very subordinate role yeah because, I mean, yeah, it's just, just I, I didn't notice as much when I originally read both of these. But, you know, since I've done a lot more work on female superheroes since then, you're sort of like, well, do you, you know, I mean, the original Captain Marvel is in New Frontier, but Mary Marvel is not. Mm-hmm. And she was an incredibly popular character mm-hmm. during that era. I mean, Supergirl is present, I think, in one of the uh, the splash pages at the end. But, I mean, she was yeah, created right if, when this comic was reading this set. story. Would be like, where did she come from? Uh, they're all background characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you know, oh, even yeah. though they're characters that you could have certainly included in the timeline of this comic. And I mean, with Marvels too, I mean, Marvel had actually quite a lot of female superheroes in the World War II period. I mean, we don't mm. see, you know, Miss America in this comic being kind of resurrected like the original Ms. America. We don't see her being resurrected as an important part of the Marvel Universe, even though you could certainly do that, given the revisionism that's going on here in terms of setting up these iconic stories to be these central points in the Marvel Universe. But that's picking and choosing, right? You know, what story matters and who is making these things Mm -hmm. matter. Yeah, and the art style affirmed that further, of course. Like Alex Ross is Norman Rockefeller. Yeah. Comics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Darwin Cook, as I said, is using kind of a, a 1950s-ish ish, um, style. So you have uh, this, this further reach out to the past to glorify it, saying it was better then. Yeah, but, you know, his version of the past isn't the real past. I know. <laughs> that's where, well, so that's I mean, where we run into problems. <laughs> like, it'll never be the real past. But, yeah, there are absences here that... It's getting existential. <laughs> I've been, I'm, te- I'm teaching rhetoric this term. It's doing things to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the absences here are notable and important. Or that when characters are present, they're specifically present in kind of a, like Selena Kyle is in New mm-hmm. Frontier, but not as Catwoman. Right. Yeah, there's so many 
like just so many girlfriends in this. Yeah, yeah, there really are. So well, let's talk about the girlfriends in New Frontier then, perhaps. <laughs> How did they come across to you? If you've watched her Mad Men, yeah, like oh. that. <laughs> They're just there to kind of, you know, be pretty and provide a little bit of flirtatiousness. Definitely uh, got a sense Darwin cooked or, or just really wanted to draw a lot of, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> a lot, a lot of mid-century cheesecakey ladies. And they all look exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. They all act, and speak exactly the same. Maybe that reflects a lot of the roles they had were forced to play in those comics. So like, are you suggesting that's deconstructed? Oh, God, no. No, I, <laughs> I think he made a choice to do that. But like the other female character beyond Wonder Woman who gets a fair amount of focus is Lois Lane. Yeah. And it's not great. And it's like, trying to be, though, right? Well, it's sort of, but it's like... She's so courageous as a it's reporter. Courageous as a reporter, service. but like her, her contrast when she first appears is with... Hal Jordan being incredibly noble and her being like, oh, I want to get out of here and get a bath, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you've written on Lois Lane. What's your take? Oh, well, I mean, I find this construction of Lois in this comic to be particularly interesting because it is making her a more empowered character than she was in the comics from that era, by and mm-hmm. large, even though mm-hmm. 50s Lois is super complicated. And <laughs> I was just talking on another podcast last week about, you know, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane and what a weird and interesting comic that is you know like she does in many issues acquire superpowers and save the world but most of the time it's just kind of a nagging pain in Superman's side so on the one hand this is doing this revisionism with Lois Lane and making her yeah like a more kind of empowered character than she was from the comics of that era and yet that's complicated too because then it's erasing that sexism because it's being like Lois was the super empowered character there's this glorious history of Lois being this like pre-feminist then feminist then post-feminist then third wave feminist character whatever and yet that's not really what happens so it's misrepresenting the sexism right so what do we want do we want the gender rules updated to reflect Mm -hmm. what there in which these books were published, yeah. or do we want them to reflect the era that these books are represented? I don't really know. There's just such a patriotism to New Frontier, and the women really get yeah. caught up in that patriotism. I mean, like, Lois is so, like, that good girl who's one of the guys, you know? Yeah. And, like, uh, boy, are we glad we got a pretty thing to look at in the middle of this war zone. Way to be, yeah. Lois. And she's accepted on that level, but we're not encouraged to interrogate that. I mean, I, I appreciate that it emphasizes that, like, she is aware of it and is to a degree like using like it, it empowering her mm-hmm. but also yeah yeah it's, it's, <laughs> it's not great i mean if we had other better female characters in the yeah, comic then that would, it would be, be kind of good too and i mean the the recurrent like wonder woman as like angel savior kind of imagery and just like dialogue that we have mm-hmm. you know she's such a she becomes that patriotic female character that like this is what we're all fighting for boys yeah. is this image of wonder woman you know she's like always swooping <laughs> in and saving gi's while they look at her with awe well what about masculinity then in both texts we sort of brought it up that that's like a big theme right yeah. i would certainly say that if both of these texts are reconstructive mm-hmm. that constructing comic book masculinity or reconstructing comic book masculinity to be because i mean you know the masculinity of superhero comics has been something obviously that's been criticized for a long time like not just in the present i mean it's something that you know the hyper masculinity of superheroes was something frederick worthen was worried about too and i think to an extent he had a right to be worried about um and i would argue that yeah both comics are trying to kind of restructure that masculinity to be something there's critiques of masculinity it's present certainly in marvels i would say more than new frontier but how are both comics dealing with masculinity how are they dealing with the question of masculinity how would you say they're restructuring masculinity in 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 terms of their restructuring of these kind of golden age but also early silver age heroes this isn't it's a huge question this isn't directly related but i need to get it off my chest go for it hal jordan is like what if daredevil but no charm oh poor hal i feel like i've defended hal on the podcast before i mean this is the second time i've had us read a comic heavily featuring hal (laughs) i I know that my defense of him is indefensible i mean i know he's the worst and yet he's so great (laughs) 
I'm sorry. Uh, all right. So in terms of masculinity, yeah. uh, he is obvious. Maybe the key figure in New Frontier, at least the one who gets a lot of focus, not soul, but a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And his second appearance, or his appearance in the second half of the first issue is all around this idea that he is not, he is fighting in the war, but he never kills anyone. Right. Except Pause. except at the very end, and it's a tragedy, it's a farce, because the war is over, but he can't remember the words to tell the other person that the war is over. Well, it's and, a classic kind of like Kurtzman war comic yeah, it's, it's irony. A, yeah, like the first half of the issue is a tribute to the adventure comic, mm -hmm. the second half to war comics. And and that is the idea of his masculinity that keeps getting referred to, that other characters later on are like, you are less of a man because you went to this war and didn't kill people, and that's why you can't be the leader of this project. And it feels like it's presenting it as this conflict of two opposing views of masculinity, but it also it feels like an opposition that isn't really. Yeah, it contradicts itself. So it is this idea of... Um, what a shock that the bravest man in the world is the one who doesn't want to kill, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, the end of this book, the third act, is him participating in a glorious visual yeah. battle that very much reads like World War II dogfights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But against a convenient, inhuman monster yeah. that we can exactly. all feel good about slaughtering. Yeah. Which is a very boring choice for this book's main yeah. villain, but... It really, again, with the groundwork it laid, it could have had a really great third act. Yeah, and it just like I think it works the third act, but I mean it shouldn't work. It's so kind of shit. But as I, I think Cook is trying to do something interesting with um, 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 masculine sex roles um, from like a like, sociological perspective and trying to interrogate them and interpret them. But he keeps falling into those tropes uh, of mm -hmm. the war hero, the martyr, the self-sacrifice, the do it for the women, all that kind of stuff. And, and it's that nostalgia that's working against him, and I don't think he ever gets an escape velocity from it. Okay, well, I'm going to do a sort of defense of the Hal Jordan depiction in this comic. It's like a defense, not defense, because my defense of it is that what I think it's doing is very smart and complicated, but I think it's doing an ultimately conservative thing, which is that I do really, again, I, I think it's, it's, it's admiringly complicated to kind of do Hal's lack of fear in the way that this comic is doing it. I mean, Hal's often been just such a boring, boring character because, yeah. you know... <laughs> why he has no fear and like how this is an important part of his character has never really been figured out properly there's been various attempts to do it like Hal has had his origin story retold more times uh -huh. than like almost every like successful DC superhero because it's just people are always trying to make it work and I do find that the way New Frontier makes it work is quite effective you know him having this pacifism and him having this bravery that you know is kind of rooted in his well because I me mean, he's started struggling with ptsd right you know mm -hmm. like he thinks there's something wrong with him because he doesn't have fear because he wants to take these risks and that's an interesting take on how yeah. jordan i think what i'm suspicious of as a political project is that it's giving us the same old hal jordan but giving us an excuse to think that's okay because that's he's mm -hmm. so sensitive and we really feel for him and it really works on me like again <laughs> <laughs> like i'm very susceptible to the charms of hal jordan while recognizing what a pro political problem is he's just such a charming mimbo i just like i can't <laughs> i can't with him and flash i really love in this too i mean he i think flash I, straight up murders a man for like you hurt my uh iris Murders? Are you thinking of the Captain Cold thing? Yes. He doesn't murder him. I think he could have done. He's the fastest man alive. He could have had that situation turn out differently if he wanted it. Well, I suppose. I don't know. You guys didn't like Flash in this comic? I was going to ask you about sort of well, fairy favorite characters and moments, and I was sure he was going to come up. I don't like Barry Allen either. Yeah. I didn't like the fact that I, I really liked Wally West. And yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I Martian Manhunter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. Hands down, my favorite. Well, maybe we should go there. I mean, like, well, well actually, before we get off the topic of masculinity, like, can we talk about it in Marvels just briefly? Sure. Yes. Like what it's doing with kind of masculinity, yeah. because that's a big, Absolutely. big theme. How does it kind of, kind of come across well, as a theme? It's kind of, it's really interesting that we are getting this kind of perspective from an increasingly aging narrator mm -hmm. written by, with a comic that's created by people who are very early in their career and very young. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting where it stops in its history, yeah. too. I mean, like, it's definitely one of the things I'm disappointed about in Marvel is that it stops right when their universe would have been diversifying. Yeah. <laughs> it stops kind of, like, in the mid-70s. And it's like, okay, well, so right before we had, like, more than two black superheroes and, like, no female superheroes leading any books. So it's kind of this revisionist in the sense that it's, like, people from the two creators from the 90s reconstructing masculinity in the 50s and Mm -hmm. the 60s and 70s but it explores the like phil sheldon literally expresses that he is he feels that he can't do his work as a husband because how can he defend his family against these superhero threats yeah his domestic life is his antagonist yeah to some degree in this text that's a problem well, who do we think the Phil character is supposed to be representing? Is he like Busick's um, idea of the, the normal reader. comic book fan? But he's the reader, but he's also like the past reader. Yeah. Which yeah. is, he's kind of their interpretation of maybe the comic reader of the past. Well, okay, this is a slight diatribe, but there's a saying in um, the Star Wars fandom that the reason Empire Strikes Back is considered the best film is because it's the one that takes Star Wars as seriously as the fans do. <laughs> Not because it's the best film. I, I get that vibe in with Busick's yeah. interpretation of the Marvel Universe a lot. He's aggrandizing it. He's elevating mm-hmm. it beyond its roots. And he's presenting it as, as a superior in sort of um, th- th- this hyperbolic metaphor for what it meant to him as a child, in terms mm. of the child's eyes. And he's trying to make that work for an adult's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, that's, again, why I kind of fall back to this idea of uh, like, like, like apologism to some uh-huh. degree. Um so, so how that connects to masculinity, I don't know, but not in any comfortable way. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit already, you know, I mean, constructing sort of the ideal comic book reader as this certain man yeah. in a, mm-hmm. comes from a certain era with a certain kind of worldview. I mean, as much as I think Marvel's is sort of reconstructive and sort of optimistic about superheroes i mean it's also very negative about the messages of masculinity that they're kind of imparting or at least if it's not negative about that it's negative about this prototypical comic book fan and what they take from superheroes yeah i mean okay let, let's be jerks and, and be like way too symbolic <laughs> so susan sontag um writing um, um years before this comes out points out the camera is largely a, a, a phallic Mm -hmm. Uh, and that photography is this very masculine um, enterprise so phil symbolizes the gaze yeah Yeah. leaving his family to grab his camera and Mm -hmm. run out and chase the superheroes and what's the cover of his book staring Mm -hmm. directly at i think ant-man at that point or giant man yeah staring right Uh, up at his crotch crotch. yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean and then like issue three is all about the idea that like he chooses family over witnessing the event and it's a really weird sequence because we we have him running home juxtaposed with the galactus silver surfer fight and it's like there is no place for him there but also like it's not about him being with his family it's about him making the manly choice to go see his family (laughs) yeah to protect them to some degree as well right yeah no feels feels problematic but it's like it, it associates his love of the superheroes with a juvenile masculinity that he has to age out of in order to be the father that he should be. Oh, there's a, there's also something um, phallic. If, if we're taking the lens as phallic, the we fact should. that his eye, he loses his eye yeah, yeah. observing the superheroes. Yeah, so he does get symbolically castrated in that sense by watching them. Well, I get the, the thing I'm getting at with the like, I mean, you know, if, you know, if the camera is like a phallic metaphor and he keeps like running after Namor to shoot pictures of him rather than being with his wife. I mean, that that in a really Freudian, Freudian sense, like goes with the juvenile nature of his of his masculinity of his sexuality when he's a superhero fan because there's a homoeroticism implied there homoeroticism in freudian psychoanalysis is associated with immaturity it's associated with an incomplete sexuality and incomplete gender identity so there's a lot of stuff that i don't like about kind of the gender and the sexuality of marvels i find it a very kind of rote boring interpretation of what superheroes mean on that level Mm. um but that's partly because we're so you know married to phil's perspective and we don't get Mm -hmm. any other perspectives i think phil seems like a person that could exist but he's like not someone i particularly like but i don't know that we're supposed to like him 
Are we supposed to like him? I think so. You think? I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, what do you make of the ending of it then? Because, I mean, he, like, ages out of superhero comics, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, well, he's, like, substantially older. It's not like the standard aging out of superhero comics when you're, like, 21 and you got, well, you know, that's not how it works age-wise, you know, these days at all. But that's kind of the stereotype, right? That you read them when you're younger and then you age out of them. But, I mean, he's, like, much older when he ages out of them. And yet, he implies that he wants his his photographic assistant, who's a woman... Mm -hmm. To continue with the work. Okay, so another uh, joke. <laughs> so I, I've been working on this X Men project, and I'm looking at the fan letters page, and there's a name. Fan check letter. your X Men project so people can follow it. Oh, um, this is the Claremont Run, the greatest project in comics history, mm-hmm. which you can follow on Twitter. Which you can follow on Twitter at Claremont Run. Anyway, That's great. So there's um, there's a fan page in an X Men issue in which a young Kurt Busiek has written a letter to Marvel Comics, <laughs> decrying how they have massacred. <laughs> this series and they're not treating the characters right and the old ways were better and the issue he's talking about is the dark phoenix saga (laughs) maybe the greatest x-men story ever so having that in my head maybe like a week before i started reading yeah that's an uh, interesting intertext so at the end of this do you think that phil sheldon is saying i don't want to be interested in superheroes anymore because the old ones are the good ones yeah and marvels is a chronicle of again this this, like specific era bronze no it's more than bronze it's bigger than that well the whole i think the whole that whole last issue is almost him in unspoken like masculine competition with peter parker yeah like i i think one of the most fascinating goblin by extension yeah i think one of the most fascinating choices in this book that they talk about in the annotations is that they chose to make spider-man silent Right. So the only time we ever hear from Peter Parker is when he's like trying to cozy up to Jameson. Hey, this will really make Spider-Man look bad. And that's so antithetical to the view that Sheldon is trying to pursue at that moment of superheroes. But also, like, I mean, he is being upstaged by a younger photojournalist. But that's also antithetical to what we think of as the Marvel method to some degree, not the production yeah. method, but like the, the ideological method, the idea that, uh, I mean, again, the saying is that, that DC heroes are gods, Marvel heroes are people. Uh, Busick doesn't make them people, really well, clearly. It seemed like at a mo- there was a moment in that fourth issue where like Gwen Stacy was going to be the vehicle to... I mean, like, actually, you know, you go into it knowing that, no, she's never going to be that because we know it ends with her death because that is the story. The dramatic irony that's sort of driving it, yeah. But it seemed like she was going to provide, like, the personal, no, I know Spider-Man. Yeah. So, like, they're going to be brought down to Earth, but then they're not. They're so detached. It is telling that he is a journalist who has never interviewed a superhero, really. Mm -hmm. I, I guess there's Power Man, but... Who he like he walks out of that interview. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Luke. But um but yeah, but I mean that kind of makes me think that we're not really supposed to like Phil because I mean Spider-Man yeah. is the most likable Marvel superhero. He's the most beloved, he's the most reader surrogate like superhero they have. So to like alienate him from us in this comic and you know, for him to be about Gwen Stacy, I just don't know what she sees in that Parker guy. It's like, mm. well, we as the reader know what she sees in him. <laughs> I, so that's like a moment of like alienation. I don't know. I, I feel like we're supposed to regard Sheldon as kind of this elder statesman of the Marvel Universe. That's true. But I like, I like Anna's reading. Oh, I, like, I mean, I don't like him. Well, yeah. If it's deliberate, then... It's been yeah. a frustration of mine since I first read it with this comic that I don't know what to kind of make of that because it's it's super positive and super negative at the same time. Yeah. And it's like, it's frustrating. But it, what you were saying about Busick really made sense to me in terms of what he does with Astro City. And this is kind of like, they are kind of like retro optimistic superheroes, like not without complexity, but they're definitely not like post-Watchmen kind of yeah. superheroes. They are yeah. kind of nostalgic. And I like Astro City a lot, but I mean, just the sense of exhaustion at the end of Marvels with, you know, like mm-hmm. all of the superheroes have started getting so dark and everything. And I just, there's too much stuff going on and I can't handle it anymore. On the one hand, I have felt like that as a reader of Marvel mm-hmm. comics. You go through too many reboots and you just, you can't handle it anymore. And I feel that a little bit, but I mean, also him just sort of getting exhausted by the greater complexity, the greater darkness of superheroes and just like that's like why he has to finally call it quits Mm -hmm. it's interesting with that intertext that you brought up as um well the other thing that Busick like 
makes a big point of mentioning in interviews is that the story technically doesn't end there. It ends with him taking a picture of the guy who will be, or the child yeah. will go on to become Ghost Rider. Yeah, to yeah. <laughs> like you never get away from the superheroes. Yeah. So we've kind of touched on this a few times already, and it's definitely related to kind of presentations of gender and masculinity and the cultural context in which both of these comic books are trying to be set. But we should probably talk a little bit about the depictions of race in both of them, because it is problematic, but interesting in terms of them trying to incorporate sort of contexts like civil rights and context of kind of lynching and just a lot of things going on in, in, in New Frontier. Do you want to start with the New Frontier? Because it has kind of the most substantial um, kind of section. Maybe, on... maybe Marvel's first because yeah, it's sure. faster. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. So what what do we kind of have in terms of sort of racial allegory or, or, or depictions of people of color in Marvel's? Not a lot. The mutant presence would be the closest. Mm-hmm. And it's very st- striking that... The original five X-Men are all a bunch of white people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Power Man shows up, but there isn't really any attention paid to that. Yeah, it's very interesting <laughs> to me that Black Panther is so yeah, absent. Like the, oh. You could do, yeah, if, if Busick wanted to go in that direction, like Black Panther is right there to do something with. I wonder what it would be like then, because we, you know, we talked about those problems with masculinity or problems, but you know, issues with masculinity going on in in in, in this comic, and you know, to have to have it be a black superhero that he's having these thoughts about would just make it that much more icky. So I can kind of understand why he'd want to avoid that. Like, oh, Black Panther makes me feel like I'm not a real man, and I don't want to go. I'm just like, oh God, yeah. don't go there, please, don't go there, please, please, please. But like, just some reference to, hey, there's this monarch who also hangs out with a fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it is weird how absent he is. He's like referenced like one time in a photograph and like doesn't even show up. It's super weird. Well, even the Luke Cage scene. Just, yeah. This yeah. is a story about superheroes who are just, you know, everyone is in awe of. Mm-hmm. And Luke Cage, they're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, I know that's part of Cage's character, the whole um, mm-hmm. ground level hero. But like just a little bit of awareness on Sheldon's part of that would have been like so interesting. Yeah. I find it credible that Sheldon would be unaware of that. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, for us as readers, if the only black superhero we're going to have is Luke Cage and he really only shows up in this brief interview segment that Phil ends up walking away from to go do something more interesting, it's not a great look. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of makes it so that Luke Cage is representative of this kind of end of the age of heroes. And yeah. that's not great. Not mm-hmm. a great look. It feels the kind of thing that would happen if you were writing this in the 90s. Yeah. Well, it's, maybe it's age showing a little bit there then. I mean, this was before kind of, you know, the the kind of rejigging of Black Panther that would have happened a few years Although, after And this, this was right? the Milestone era? Is this, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, it would have been like, that era. Other people were paying attention to that. Yeah. Even the way Cage is drawn. And I don't know if mm-hmm. this is just being hyper-attuned to the nuance, but like... He, he's not drawn impressively. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like the way yeah. he's framed, the way yeah. his posture is set up. Like you can make Luke Cage look amazing oh, yeah. and, and awesome the way that Alex Ross is doing with most other heroes in this book at some point. And, and then Cage, like if you told me he was just a normal guy in superhero costume, as far as the story, I'd be like, oh, I don't know how far I want to go with this. But <laughs> I mean, Alex Ross's imagery does have kind of like a white supremacy vibe to it. And I haven't mm. found him super great at like rendering diverse characters. But I'm not like putting on him like he's this big white supremacist or something. I just think that a lot of his visual references are not in the realm of diverse representation. And this mm-hmm. is maybe yeah. something that is not in his wheelhouse. I don't know. That's, I guess, all I'll say about it because I don't really know what more I would say. But uh, let's talk about New Frontier and the John oh, Henry story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so there's the John Henry Iron story, which I had to be informed connects to Steel from um, the Superman. Which connects to Shaq. Which connects to <laughs> the greatest superhero movie of all time. The greatest superhero, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> Um, but which also connects horrifyingly specifically to the most recent Watchmen TV series, mm-hmm. but I can't give anything away because my colleagues haven't seen it. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I know what 
it happens. I have, I have I, no idea. I, I don't anything. usually watch television <laughs> without reading the spoilers first because I actually don't like being surprised. Mm-hmm. So yeah, never a concern for me. But it's a it, it's a real dark and cynical mm-hmm. moment, and there's, there's this really kind of heartbreaking scene of um, uh, John being injured, and um, he's being hunted by a lynch mob, and they're trying to kill him. And um, this this little girl looks at him and he says, "Please help me." I think it is. Yeah. Uh, and she calls attention to where he is it's using the n-word yeah it's an it's interesting because it's almost well i mean there's no connection other than the fact that we read both of these at the same time but it's a reversal of the mutant scene Mm -hmm. where the sheldon winds up sheltering a young mutant girl from mobs Mm -hmm. yeah i also thought i compared nancy to marvels when we talked about them the appropriation and and that 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 stuff um specifically martian manhood Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, and I, I actually kind of like it. I, I thought they were doing some interesting things with um, him hiding a secret identity that yeah. he read from a racial perspective or possibly a sexuality perspective, mm-hmm. uh, and, and him feeling like an outsider and having to perform and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I'm going to say not great, but it, I do think Crook was trying. It, it does feel a little like this character exists to make the, I mean, the end effect is that the other characters feel angry. Like he's the, he so, is, yeah. he's killed off so that they can have an emotional reaction. Well, a black dude like suffers to talk yeah. about so that we can talk about white pain. Yeah, which is very classic. And of course, the the finale again, the third act is this is a planetary battle, mm-hmm. uh, and it's fought, I think, exclusively by like white people. I believe so, but largely, yeah, yeah, and and that's that's not. And obviously, comes back to the Wonder Woman scene that we talked about earlier. Well, I mean, here's the thing about the John Henry storyline too, though, because I can I can almost give it the benefit of the doubt that you know, if it was going to be this commentary on <sighs> these comics were so not inclusive and racial politics were so bad during this era that we couldn't have had a black hero on the steam. It just would have been unimaginable, and it's like a condemnation of that level of racism. And yet, that doesn't follow through because you don't. Yeah, yeah, and like. Like, I mean, showing the brutality of racism in this era is, like, good, but not having the other characters have any kind of sophisticated reaction to that and not having any other black voices and having black bodies only present to suffer and die and make white people feel things. It's just, like, so unbelievably tone deaf that you have to feel like if this comic was released now in kind of the era of social media and Twitter and, like, Mm -hmm. super active fan sites that care about race and comics, like, this would have got raked over the coals. It's also... I mean, I know it's implicit in the John Henry name, but the whole, like, let's tell this old folk story every time he shows up, that, yeah. Well, I mean, it mythologizes him and further, like, dehumanizes him. Yeah. I mean, and again, the John Henry's ballad has got a really complex history, too, where, you know, it's been used by different people to different ends. Um, Some positive, some negative, depending depending on who's doing it. And yet, again, like, it places him so separate from the other characters Mm -hmm. and like it makes it seem like because if it's going to be telling this story about prejudice and race and john jim crow and how these things are bad those things are just peripheral to the other characters and don't affect them at all like if martian manhunter does have this affinity for that that's not even really played out except for as like an idea like john henry might as well just be one of the martians in the newsreel right yeah it it feels so much that he is there to serve as another step in like john jones uh slow loss of innocence regarding humans and yet the ideal spokesman for racial inclusion is a character who can whenever he wants to pass as white and i mean you know uh, the heavy-handedness of again that team of all white heroes being presented as objectively incredibly heroic and us all coming together at the end to defeat the center can we talk about the center thing because i never understand it like it's like such a stupid simple like metaphor and yet like that's why i think i get hung up on it because i mean i associate 
Kennedy and that era of politics as being centrist. So then it's like when he's saying the center, it's like, is it like, I mean, I'm just going to be dumb here. Like, is he saying that these superhero characters and stuff are these like liberal magical outsiders that are like defeating conservatism? Or is it like the other way around? It feels like he read Watchmen and was like, what if I just did that literally? <laughs> like without the deconstruction part? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, I in guess. There is a lot of comics artists. That yes, was, that was, that was the takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't get, like, why dinosaurs, other than dinosaurs, are kind of cool. But I mean, I thought it was like they're the past. I and these characters are the future. They're the new frontier, right? Well, I, yeah, I guess that's what you get, particularly when the magic goozers, like, just come out and say, well, we can't interfere because. We are the past. And, and they represent the uniformity of the past. Yeah. It represents sort the of group thing. creates the uniformity, right? That's the I whole know. idea. It's, it's, it's the mission. So the new frontier is superheroes. So the superheroes are uniting. Also, like, new frontier as a metaphor. Yeah, there's, there's some things in there. <laughs> yeah. Connotations we don't want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's just, yeah, it's so weird because, I mean, it's so genuine in its embrace of, like, Kennedy-era optimism, which seems very strange yeah. for, like, someone writing this in the early um, 2000s. Although, like, it's someone writing this in a... T it's someone writing about past nostalgia in the early 2000s. Yeah. So this is another thing that we've sort of been talking around a little bit, but... These comics are both very nostalgic in their approach to their visualization of their worlds and yet in an incredibly different way. You know, we have this very kind of like, I don't know how to describe Darren Kidd, you know, camp, cartoony, retro style versus Alex Ross's uh, hyper photorealistic style, which, you know, your mileage might vary. I like Ross decently for like a comic with sort of like action and pacing. I sometimes struggle with him mm -hmm. a little bit. But how did the art speak to kind of what either of these stories were doing? Because maybe this will get us back to that question of the brand work that's happening, right? Because the art is such an important signposting of what either of these comics is doing. So what did you kind of make of the function of the art in either case? I don't know which one of you wants to go first. I think it's fascinating that Ross's style really works for the juxtaposition. That like he can do the really ordinary scene and mm -hmm. the really grandiose scene yeah that's it's almost funny. anything in between where he has trouble yeah and yeah it, it the juxtaposition of that like racing home with the uh silver surfer fight is mm -hmm. kind of like the the pinnacle of that for me mm -hmm. i will say that i am very glad that i am maybe less artistically observant because i know some people have read marvels and are just like distracted by all of the celebrities he like just tossed it, it, it distracted me too yep. yeah i do not notice yeah. art in that way and i'm kind of glad for it in this case but i think in marvels what we're looking at is um in contrast to new frontier a prestige style yeah mm -hmm. so so again like, like this is beautiful hand-painted artwork mm -hmm. that, that again could easily be on a gallery wall kind of thing um where darwin cook is going in the opposite direction using a, a nostalgic simplified style or at least mm -hmm. a seamless although there is still a like a tourist sense to cook or has been attributed i think has been put onto him see for me with, with cook the auteur element is the juxtaposition yeah the idea of using the old style with a grim and grittier um, yeah. content yeah. Um, versus like ross and Busick are on the exact same page mm -hmm. let's aggrandize these older yeah. moments both narratively and visually I, I like Cook, therefore, for being, like, disarming a little bit. I, I like seeing Wonder Woman look like um, she belongs on, a, uh, like, like a, an airplane fuselage uh, doing horrible things uh, in the contents uh -huh. of the story. I, I find that kind of makes for more of a deconstruction or interrogation, coming yeah. back to our earlier discussion, where Ross just enhances Busick's celebration. Well, I think part of the popularity of Cook's approach is that it's a double nostalgia that it is like for the for the old 50s interpretation of the dc universe but also it's a nostalgia for people who 
grew up with the DC cartoons and like that yeah. style, visual yeah. style. Yeah, it's so many layers of nostalgia. I like that. And, it, and it's sort of making the comics from the 50s like look like other things from the 50s, which mm. is not really what the comics from the 50s looked like. So then it's yeah. this other weird revisionism of like using nostalgia for the 50s and like imprinting that on the superhero characters and incorporating them into that, which is really interesting. Yeah, I like that thing you brought up about the juxtaposition though, because that, that really brings up maybe what we're finding so unsatisfying with the ending of new frontier because it is so genuine right, right. and like I, yeah. I agree that those moments of juxtaposition are perhaps like some of the most powerful ones but then at the end we, they're just so heroic yeah. and that if there was any hint of that it kind of fades away So I am doing the academic book review for this month, and it is going to be of Peter Coogan's book, Superhero, The Secret Origin of a Genre. So Superhero, The Secret Origin of a Genre by Peter Coogan was originally published by Monkey Brain Books in 2006. Coogan is an influential presence in comic studies in the U.S. He's the founder of the Institute for Comic Studies and co-founder of the Comic Arts Festival, otherwise known as the academic wing of San Diego Comic-Con, which I had the privilege of attending a few years ago. The central purpose of Superhero, The Secret Origin of a Genre is basically what the title suggests. It's a book about the origins of the superhero genre that specifically looks to define the superhero genre as a specific thing, distinct from other related genres. A few academics had previously attempted to define the superhero genre, perhaps most prominently Richard Reynolds in his off-cited 1992 book, Superheroes of Modern Mythology. But Coogan's book is one of the first, and still surprisingly one of the only books, that makes a comprehensive argument about which characteristics a story needs to have in order to be a superhero story, as well as where those characteristics come from and how they became not just characteristics, but conventions, whose use is now so obvious and almost intuitive that it's become practically invisible. As Coogan observes, the word superhero is used a lot, everywhere, to describe all sorts of different characters and people. Sports stars are described as superheroes. Gods are described as superheroes. Heroes of epic poetry are described as superheroes. Science fictional cowboys like Luke Skywalker are described as superheroes. This terminological messiness has always bothered me because I always felt that there was something very different from Luke Skywalker and Superman, Spider-Man, or Wonder Woman. I was pretty sure that the superhuman abilities weren't on their own enough to make a character a superhero, neither was a flashy costume or a secret identity. A character could have one or even two of these things and still feel like they didn't fit within the specific space we commonly call the superhero genre. Coogan agrees while offering a convincing explanation of why this is the case. Coogan's why is grounded in the historical and cultural context that gave birth to the superhero. Superheroes, according to Coogan, are born within a specific historio-cultural moment that informs their distinctness. Unlike gods, superheroes are generally technological in origin, and unlike both cowboys and space cowboys, they generally have close ties to the texture and geography of the modern American city. The core, though, of Coogan's argument about the specificity of the superhero genre lies in his analysis of its particular emphasis on identity. The gods and pulp and adventure heroes like Doc Savage, Tarzan, Zorro, and John Carter indelibly influence the superhero genre. Other genres do not emphasize identity in quite the same way as the superhero genre does. As Coogan observes, the superhero genre is unique among other commonly recognized popular genres in that its name doesn't describe a context, like the western or science fiction or mystery do. Instead, the superhero genre is named for the type of character that stars in it. Coogan argues that superheroes are defined above all else by their possession of what he calls the MPI, which stands for Mission, Powers, and Identity. But these traits don't really have equal weight, they're more cumulative, culminating in the superhero's unique embodiment of a purely distilled identity. The superhero's mission informs his or her powers, which in turn informs his or her identity. All of these things are further distilled into a codename and iconicity of the superhero costume. A superhero's costume, says Coogan, expresses his or her inner character and embodies their biography, while the code name emblematizes the superhero's identity. So here's an example I often use when teaching classes about superheroes that's um, inspired by Coogan's formulation. A pulp character like the Green Hornet is almost a superhero. He's got the code name, the costume, and the secret identity. He's also got a mission, and through gadgets and the help of Kato, he's basically got superpowers. But Green Hornet's mission powers, and identity aren't unified and distilled in the same way that they are for a character like Batman. Green Hornet doesn't dress up like a Green Hornet, and the name the Green Hornet doesn't express anything particularly important about the character's biography. Batman, on the other hand, has a revelation involving bats, which inspires him to fight crime while dressed up as a bat, with a bat symbol on his chest and calling himself Batman. 
Batman's codename and costume express his mission and his powers and distill his identity. His mission, powers, and identity are united in his codename and visual representation. The central importance of this unified distilled identity has something to do with modernity, with the city, with modern advertising, branding, and mass media, all of which Coogan touches on in his book and lots more things besides, which I don't have time to talk about in depth here. Um, there's a great section on supervillains and several sections tracing the history of the superhero genre, which would be relevant to the conversations that we've had today. Plenty of scholars aren't overly fond of restrictive definitions of genres, and for good reasons. The development and perception of genre is always going to be more complicated than a checklist of conventions can account for. But Coogan's book doesn't read like a checklist of conventions. Instead, it reads like an excessively written but academically rigorous argument about why the superhero genre is worth studying as a specific cultural phenomenon. The specificity matters to legitimizing the topic of superheroes and deepening our discussions of how they work and what they mean. As someone who started a dissertation on superhero comics just a few years after the publication of Coogan's book, I'm extremely grateful to have such an enduringly useful framework to build upon and fall back upon, which I've done many, many times in the intervening years. Thank you guys so much for an awesome conversation. I've been wanting to discuss both of these comics with some other smart ACA fans for years and years and years. So bucket list item checked off. Well, wasn't quite on my bucket list, but still an enjoying an enjoyable conversation. Bucket lists are morbid, don't have one. Um, but as usual, we will do some recommendations related or perhaps tangentially related, depending on where we go with them, um, to what we read this week. Who would, who would like to kick us off? You look like you're ready to go, Michael. Yeah, I'd like to recommend uh, Spider-Man Life Story, a six-issue series that came out last year with the general idea that it tells uh, Spider-Man's story as if he was aging in real time. So clearly this a very similar reconstruction approach to a character's history by uh, Chip Zdarsky and Mark Bagley. I don't think, honestly, it's quite as successful as either of these books, but I think it is really interesting to see where this kind of historic comic impetus has gone in recent years. Mm, good one. What about you, Andrew? I'm going to recommend Sean Howe's Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. Oh. It, it, it is not a that. comic. It's yeah. <laughs> a very, very large textbook, um, but extremely accessible, really well-researched, um, and one of those rare kind of crossover texts where I mean, a lot of people are reading it, but we're also seeing um, a lot of academics citing it. Mm-hmm. I consulted it to get the historical context of 94 <laughs> for my intro. Yeah, and it, it really helped me because I read it after reading Marvels the first time and then read Marvels again after mm-hmm. having read Sean Howe's book. It, it adds a great deal to the experience. It's depressing. It, it is also depressing. <laughs> yes. that's, that's my primary memory of reading. It's really good, but yeah, there's just a lot of stuff about, you know, the misogynistic culture of Marvel that I found mm-hmm. particularly depressing. Um, my recommendation is a bit more fun, <laughs> though I don't know. It sounds like I'm crapping on your recommendation. That book is really great, and you should check it out. Um, I'm going to recommend um, John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake's Martian Manhunter series. From It ran from 1998 to 2001. So it would be technically Martian Manhunter Volume 2. Um, it was a great series that kind of... I was thinking it must have been after New Frontier because New Frontier was kind of a rejigging of Martian Manhunter in some ways, but this series actually um, predates it. Martian Manhunter is a character I've always really liked, but he's a character that's not always handled particularly well. But this was a little bit of a reboot for the character that did some interesting things in terms of the meaning of his powers, sort of metaphors of shape-shifting, sort of how that impacts sort of his relationship with humanity. And there's a great thing in it where... (laughs) Because one of the things about Martian Manhunter is that he's like an underachiever. He's got all the same powers as Superman, but like he's like often just absent for things. Um, But it has this conceit where he's actually like the most famous superhero in the whole rest of the world. Um, But we're just not aware of that in the US. Like he's like (laughs) he's like Superman in like Japan, but like we don't know that. Um, Anyway, it does a lot of really cool things and kind of rejigging that that character that I really appreciated. There is nothing left to do but to give a plug for our next episode in a month's time in which we will be doing Adrian Tomine's Summer Blonde paired with Daniel Klaus's Ghost World. We will see you then.